Well, I'm really excited, genuinely excited about this opportunity. I've been looking forward to this this week. I just get excited about the opportunity to, to help you better understand God's Word. And so we've been working through this book called How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Professor. I changed the title a little bit, How to Read Your Bible Like a Seminary Student. I thought it'd be better kind of lower the bar a little bit so we, you know, we could all uh, feel comfortable with that. And, and so we began, if you'll remember, in the very first lesson, we talked about the overall structure of the Bible. That if you want to read the Bible like a seminary student uh, or a seminary professor, you really need to understand the overall structure of the Bible. We gave you a list of numbers, if you guys could put that on the screen. Uh, do you remember what these numbers are? It's, it's, it's test time, all right? I see Brad shaking his head, so Brad, you're going to lead us, okay? You got it. All right, tell us what the first row, it's kind of like an eye exam. I'm squinting, trying to see the numbers. Tell us what the first row is, Brad. Oh, you read really good. I appreciate that. Your eyesight's good. Okay, all right, all right. Well, tell us what it means then. Right? Right? Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely wonderful. Great. How about the second line? Who can give us the second line, which represents the New Testament? Donna, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Great. I, it, it, I, it's kind of competition over there to see who did better, but you know, we'll, we'll, you guys did great. And so that was the first lesson talking about the overall basic structure of the Bible. Then last week, we began talking about the master narrative of the Bible, and we got through the Old Testament. So last week, we talked about the master narrative of the Old Testament, and that was kind of like drinking through a water hose, I mean a fire hose last week, wasn't it? Somebody said, you know, I, I brought two pens and I was afraid it's still going to run out of ink. Uh, and so I was thinking about that and I've made two decisions. The first decision is I recognize I threw a lot at you and it's nearly impossible to write all of that down. And so here's what I'm going to do if you'd like, to, if you'd like this. I'm going to give you a copy of my notes. Just for, yeah. I don't mean for the whole course, but, but I'll give you a copy of the Old Testament and the New Testament. All right? That'll help you. Uh, so you can go back. You wrote a lot of notes last week. You can take my notes and kind of fill in the blanks and that kind of thing. So here's how you can get those notes because it's like seven or eight pages for the Old Testament. Last week was seven or eight pages. Uh, so rather than try to print all that out, not knowing how many copies to make, here's how you can get it. Email Lori. Her address is L-A-C-K-E-R-L-Acker at MountAreaBaptist.com. Just email her sometime this week and request a copy of my notes. Now, she doesn't know about this yet, <laughs> unless she's watching tonight. Uh, so just be patient with her as, as she'll have to get it together to, to send out to you. So that's the first decision I made uh, regarding how we need to change things because we tried to cover so much material last week. The second decision that I made is this. We are going to, starting tonight, we're going to go at a slower pace and we're going to spread it out. Because basically, I had allotted five weeks to cover this book, which is ridiculous. All right? I, I should know better, right? I should know better. And, and so here's what we're going to do. 
we're going to stick with the calendar that, that, that Brad and I had developed. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to de- break it into two units. And so unit one, how to study the Bible, unit one, will go through February the 7th. Uh, that's what we had originally planned. We originally planned to do the whole thing in that amount of time. But, but we're going to just take that first unit for the first five weeks. February 14th is Valentine's Day. We're not going to have an evening service. And then February 21 through March 28, we're having a men and women's Bible study that will go for six weeks. Uh, Brad's teaching the men. Uh, Robin McDonald's teaching the women. They've got a great uh, study planned out for, for the men and women. So we'll do that. Then we'll have Easter. We won't have an evening service then. And then April 11th and May the 2nd, through May the 2nd, how to study the Bible unit two. So basically my plan is this. We're going to slow down. And in these five weeks that we have together, I'm going to give you some stuff to work on. So that during that time when, we're, when you and I are not together, you're going to have plenty of stuff to work on. Then we'll come back for unit two and give you more information about how to read your Bible. Does that make sense? It, it'll take it slower. You can use it. You can develop it. And I think it, it will help you in that way. So tonight, tonight we're going to look at the master narrative of the New Testament. And we're going to discuss some practical steps you can take in studying the text. Uh, let me remind you what I said last week. It's a statement I made last week. I want to make it again. <clears throat> while the structure of the Bible is divided into two sections, while the structure of the Bible is divided into an Old Testament and a New Testament, the Bible tells one single unified story. The narrative begins in Genesis and it concludes in Revelation. So when we're talking tonight about the master narrative of the New Testament, I don't want you to have the idea that this is somehow a different story. This is the continuation of the story of the Old Testament. Now, so let's talk tonight about the master narrative of the New Testament. The entire story of the New Testament, the master narrative of the New Testament, is much easier than the Old Testament. I was talking to Brad this week. He has no confidence in me. (laughs) We were talking about, well, the New Testament narrative is easier, it's, it's shorter, I'll be able to get that down. And he said, no, you won't. <laughs> or maybe he does have confidence in me. <laughs> but the master narrative of the New Testament is much, much shorter than the Old Testament, a lot less material. You're more familiar with it, and so it'll be easier uh, for us to go through. You can really break down the entire story of the New Testament into three stories, three smaller stories. And so we're going to take the master narrative and break it down into three smaller stories. And the first story, the first story is what we would call the arrival and work of the Messiah. If you want to understand the New Testament, you have to understand that first story, if you will, in, in the book. Which is the arrival and work of the Messiah, which covers the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now... The arrival and work of the Messiah, really, I'm going to call them five chapters. They're not really chapters, but there's five divisions under that that will help you uh, to get an understanding of the arrival and the work, or the arrival and work of the Messiah. So the first section or chapter in this story is this idea of a messianic hope. A messianic hope. Here's what I mean by that. When you open the New Testament... 400 years have passed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Israel, when you come to the New Testament, Israel is now living in the land of covenant. They are now living in the land of promise. But an interesting thing about the land they're living in, they're living under 
the authority of someone else. They're always under the rule of another country. So yes, they're living in the covenant land. Yes, they're living in the promised land spoken about in the Old Testament. They're living in that land, but they're living under the rule of another country. First it was Persia, then it was Greece, then it was Rome. By the way, those three countries or those three nations ruling over Israel were prophesied in Daniel chapter 2, exactly as it occurred. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel prophesied that there would be these three nations that would rule over God's people. So when you come to the New Testament and, and you open the story of the New Testament, the people of God are living in the land that God promised them, but Rome is now occupying that land. Rome is now live, is ruling over them. And so the question that people would have in that day as the New Testament was opening, New Testament times, has God forgotten His promises? Because we're being ruled by another people. We're being oppressed by another government. When will the Messiah come to deliver His people? Now, the people basically yearned for political liberation. You need to understand that. One of the reasons, as you read the Gospels, one of the reasons that the people of God misunderstood who Jesus was was because they were looking for somebody to be a political liberator. Messiah, in their mind, was somebody who will get Rome off of our back, somebody who will conquer Rome and free our country, and we will finally get to live in the land of covenant like we were supposed to. So they were looking for a political Messiah, and they were not really looking for deliverance from sin. So that's the first, So there's this messianic hope when you come to the early part of the New Testament story. There's this messianic hope that there is one going to come who will deliver us from the oppression of Rome. The second chapter in that story is the, is the chapter about a Savior that's born. Matthew and Luke tell us the story about the birth of the Savior of the world. Now you need to make sure you understand, this is the Savior of the world. I know that we've just come through the Christmas season, and I know you're familiar with this verse, but would you look at Luke chapter 2 with me? Luke chapter 2. We're going to read a couple of verses here that you've read before, and we've read recently, but I, I want you to read them in context. Luke chapter 2, the, the angel says to the shepherd, let's start in verse 10, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring good news of great joy, that will be for how many people? All the people. Now wait a minute, wait a minute, remember what God said to Abraham? All the people of the world will be blessed through your descendants. So the angel now is picking up this story. And the angel is saying to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then he says in verse 11, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ. He is Messiah, the Lord. The angel is announcing something incredibly important. The angel is announcing where he would be born, in the town of David, like was prophesied. And the angel was announcing, he will be Savior. This is the one you've been looking for. And then the angel also calls him Messiah, or Christ. Messiah, the Lord. 
You see, the promise to Abraham made in the Old Testament was almost complete. Through God's people in their land, God would bless the world. A savior for all the people, he said. And the promise to David was nearly fulfilled. God would establish a a king to rule over Israel. And his kingdom would extend through all the world. And that's why, go over to the left. I know we read this, I think it was last week. But I want you to read it again. Because I want you to see the very first words of the New Testament. I want you to see how the New Testament opens. It's not by accident that these words are there. The very first words of the New Testament, the very first verse... A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The writer is telling us something. He's telling us about this Savior everyone has been looking for. That the promise to Abraham was almost complete. That the promise to David was nearly fulfilled. A Savior has been born. Which brings us to the third chapter in this story, and that is the Messiah's earthly ministry. At God's appointed time, John the Baptist came onto the scene to announce the arrival of this Messiah. To announce the arrival of the one who had been predicted in the Old Testament. Again, I know we've read this recently, but it would be worth our time to read it again. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says this. In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's almost here. This is he who was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's message and John's mission was to prepare the people of Israel for the arrival of the king, the arrival of the Messiah, who would soon take center stage. And the world would never be the same. And so, really, the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is just the story of the arrival and the earthly ministry of this man that John the Baptist introduced to the world. And, of course, each of the gospel writers, the four gospels, they present a distinct but faithful depiction of Jesus Christ. Then the fourth chapter in this story is the Messiah's earthly sacrifice. Because the Messiah didn't just come to live on the earth. He didn't just come to have a ministry. But Messiah came to be an earthly sacrifice. John chapter 1 verse 29. Hope you got your Bibles and you run there with us. John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day John saw Jesus. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him. And said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of what, church? Of the world. There it is again. The promise made to Abraham. The promise made in in Genesis. And John the Baptist stands there and declares, Look! That's the one! He's the one! The Messiah! The Savior! The Lamb of God! The Sacrifice! Now, the interesting thing, we could take some time here if we had the time to really talk about this. Something so interesting is that, you know what the people in that day were really desiring? I alluded to it a moment ago. They were desiring a military conqueror. They really were not mindful of the fact that they needed a sacrifice. In fact, the religious people, the religious leaders in that day, really didn't see their need 
for one to break the bonds of sin. They wanted someone to break the bonds of Rome. And so when Jesus started talking about sacrificial death, and when Jesus started talking about forgiving sins, who can forgive sins but God, they said. They were so infuriated that they decided to kill him. Which is incredible to think about. Here is Messiah, here is the Savior of the world, and the religious people, the religious people were so oblivious to the fact that this is Messiah, the Savior of the world. And they decided in their hatred that they would kill Jesus, which led to his sacrifice. And of course, that was no accident. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is a narrative that the climax of the, really, of the Bible narrative is his, his death on the cross. So here's what I want you to see, and then I need to move on. Here's what I want, write this down, this is really important. Jesus is the answer to the problem of evil created in Genesis 3. What you see in the sacrifice, of, behold, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the answer to the sin that started in Genesis 3. To the evil created in Genesis 3. Now, of course, the, the fifth chapter in this story about the Messiah is the Messiah's resurrection and you need to be real clear, Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. It's not like Jesus was laying in the tomb and he said, okay, it's been about three days, I think I'll get up now. Jesus did not raise himself up from, Jesus was dead. He wasn't pretending to be dead. Jesus was dead. God raised him from the dead, the Bible says. God raised him from the dead. And when God raised him from, from the dead, God, through Jesus, conquered death, hell, and the grave. And because he was raised from the dead, he achieved the salvation that we all need when, if we'll simply put our faith in him. And then after his resurrection, Jesus left his followers, of course, with instructions to go and take this message to the world. Go and tell everybody. And, of course, we call that the Great Commission. So, that's the first section of the New Testament. Brad, how am I doing so far? Are we going to make it? All right. So, the first section is the arrival and work of the Messiah. The second story in the New Testament is the story of church history. This, of course, covers the book of Acts and the 21 letters of the New Testament. Let's talk about Acts just real quickly. First of all, the book of Acts. Remember now, the Gospels tell the story about the life of Christ, but Acts tells the story of the life of the church. Get that in your mind, that Acts tells the story of the life of the church. The Gospels, they tell the story of Jesus. Acts, it tells the story of the church. The narrative begins with the ascension, the ascension of the Messiah, and then it chronicles the birth of the church at Pentecost, and then the rise of the church in Jerusalem, and then the spread of the church. And so what you read in Acts is, in, in the book of Acts, it's tracing the steps of the apostles. Tracing the steps of the apostles and other leaders as they're led by the Holy Spirit to present the gospel to other people. And it's interesting, I wish we had time to talk about this aspect, but the apostles, as you trace the steps of the apostles, they take the gospel to the Jews first. Then eventually, men like Peter and Paul take the gospel to the Gentiles. So Acts traces that journey of the gospel. 
from, from just Jews to also Gentiles. Acts also explains the spread of the gospel. Acts traces the spread of the gospel beginning in Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And along the way, as they're spreading the gospel, of course, they're starting churches, which leads to the letters. 21 letters were written to churches and to individuals who led those churches to help them know how to live as a Christian, to help them know how to, do, how to work together as the body of Christ, to teach them doctrine. This is what you believe. This is what we need to share. This is our joint faith. And so those are the 21 letters, which brings us to the third story, the final story of the New Testament, and that is the king's kingdom, which is the book of Revelation. The grand narrative of the Bible, which spans the length and breadth of human history, culminates with the New Testament book of Revelation. This mysterious book of prophetic images and amazing visions really concludes the story that began, that was begun in Genesis. Over the years, this book has been used by the Holy Spirit to assure us that we have ultimate victory even though we're living in days that are very evil. God gave us this book to assure us we have ultimate victory. And so if you take that very complex book of Revelation, and I know we've taught Revelation here not too long ago, if you take that complex book of Revelation, you can really break it down into three very simple sections. The first one is judgment of planet earth. Revelation details a time yet to come known as the tribulation period. And in this time, God will bring all of human history to a conclusion and judge the evil in this world. I'll say that one more time. During this time, God will begin the process of bringing all of human history to a conclusion and will judge the evil in this world. That's the first kind of section of Revelation. And, and it's a big section of Revelation. And then you want the, the second part of Revelation is the return of Christ. Tribulation period gives way to the second advent of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And the ultimate conflict between Jesus and Satan will occur. This ultimate conflict. Anybody know what it's called? What that time of conflict is called? After the tribulation. What's it called? Armageddon. At this battle of Armageddon. This will be, if you will, the ultimate conflict between Jesus and Satan. And the Bible says that Jesus will merely open his mouth. And Satan will be defeated. And he will be bound. And Christ will be victorious. So that's the second part of the, of the story of Revelation. Third part of the story is this. And this is one that we don't talk about very much. But it's an important part of the story in Revelation. That is a new world order. A new world order. Revelation closes with a majestic description of a new world order. I want you to think for a minute about Genesis. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Especially chapter 3. In Genesis, man is living in an ideal location. He's living in the Garden of Eden. He's living in the presence of God. Everything he needs is provided. There is nothing but peace and joy and God's presence. He has everything. And then in the Garden, that peace was lost when he disobeyed God. In the garden, our world was ruined. Well, the Bible says there's coming a new world order. 
Revelation, towards the end of the book, talks about this new world order. That peace that we once had with God, that mankind once had with God in the Garden of Eden, will be restored. But God's just not going to kind of clean up this world. The Bible says there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Just go with me real quickly. Revelation 22. Revelation 22 seems to indicate there's going to be a new garden. And in this garden will be something called the tree of life. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In this recreated place of heaven and earth, the curse of sin is removed, and all of redeemed humanity will now live in complete, unhindered fellowship with God. And that is how the story ends. So that's the master narrative of the New Testament. I want to move now, transition to another thing. But before I do, I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't often do. I'm going to ask you to stand and stretch. Because I want your attention for the second half, all right? Now don't leave. I hope that now you have a a better understanding of the basic structure of the Bible and the overall story of the Bible. And and I was talking to Brad the other day. I said, you know, it's kind of frustrating because you've got to spend so much time on the basics. We're still in the shallow end. You've got to spend so much time on the basics. Uh, We're walking towards the deeper end. I just want you to know that tonight... The remaining time that we have together, we're going to talk about some of the things you can do to read your Bible better. And even this is still kind of the shallow end. But we're walking towards the deeper end. So don't give up. All right? Um, Here's what we want to talk about tonight. The work of observation. And I use that word work deliberately. The work of observation. As great as it is to know the basic structure of the Bible, as good as it is to know the overall narrative or story of the Bible, that's a great start, but we've got to move beyond those basics and examine the details of the text. Or to put it another way, we must examine how the author is saying what he is saying. Write that down. How the, you have to examine how the author is saying what he is saying. So this means that we need to slow down and really study the text. And I think this is where a lot of Christians struggle. I think this is the area where a lot of Christians really, really struggle in their Bible time, in their Bible reading. Uh, We fail to take the time to observe what the author wrote. We look, 
but we don't see. Take your Bibles. Let me show you something in Scripture. Look in uh, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Look at verse 18. He says, and this is a prayer. The psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. He's not praying for sight. He's praying for insight. Open my eyes, God. Because I just don't want to see it with my eyes. I want to have insight. I don't want to have just sight. I want insight into what your word says. And that's what observation is. Observation is the work and the art and the science of seeing what is really there. The first step in Bible study is observation. That's a simple statement, but that's a very important statement for you to get. The very first step in Bible study is observation. I was going to take the, uh, a few moments and, and show you this video, but I knew I'd run out of time and, and Brad would make fun of me, so I'm not going to do I just pick it on him tonight. I don't know why. But there's this, I watched this video. You can watch it if you'd like to. You can YouTube it. Uh, there's this video where um, the instructions are, there's these people in black shirts and people in white shirts, and they're passing a basketball around. And you have to count how many times the people in white shirts are passing the basketball. Only the people in white shirts. How many times are they passing the ball around? The video goes about a minute or so, and you're passing the ball, they're passing the ball around, and you count, and there's 15 times, according to my count. And the guy comes on and says, now the correct answer is 15. And then he says, but did you see the gorilla? Gorilla? I did this to Lisa. And she said, no, and, and I think the one I showed her might have been a, a, a bear, a black bear. So anyway, we'll call it a gorilla because one says gorilla, I know. But, but when, she, when she did that, I think it was 13 on her video. And I said, how many times? Oh, it was 13. I said, did you see the gorilla? There was no gorilla. And then we played it back. She said, that wasn't in the first one I watched. <laughs> and the gorilla, listen, this is what happened. The gorilla went moonwalking through the thing. While there's this guy in a gorilla suit moonwalking through the the scene while these people are passing the basketball. Here's the point. (laughs) Looking is not the same as seeing. I mean, have you ever had a Bible teacher that you're just sitting under him or her, they're teaching, and, and... when it's done, have you ever said, how does she see all of that? How, how does he see all of that? I mean, are we even reading the same text? Because I read that text and I didn't get all of that. You know how he or she sees all of that? They've learned the power of observation. They've learned the process of observation. So I want to say to you tonight, there are four ways. We may not get to all of these and we'll pick it up next week. There are four ways to do the work of observation. The first three are going to be very simple. I'm not going to take a lot of time. It's just very simple but important. But four ways that you and I can do the work of observation. Here's the first one. Number one, slow your speed. Slow your speed. 
If you want to be a good student of the Word, you need to slow down. If you want to study the Word of God effectively and thoroughly, you can't do that in a hurry. Now, I want to say something that I don't want you to take it the wrong way, and I've thought all week, how do I say this to make sure it doesn't come across the wrong way, but I just have to say it. There, I, I don't care what kind of Bible reading plan you have. If you're reading the Bible, I like your plan, okay? But one of the problems with reading the Bible through in a year is that you're reading so fast, you're not seeing what's there. The reason that my Bible reading plan that I gave you is one chapter a day is so you will slow down and see what's there. Again, I'm not criticizing if you read it through. There, there, is a, there is something to be said for reading the entire Bible in a year and getting the big narrative, understanding the whole story. There's something to be said about that. And again, let me say, if you're reading the Bible, I like your plan. But I, I want you to understand that observation is like making a pot of stew in the crock pot. It takes time, but it's worth it. So slow down. That's a simple one. Slow down. Number two, this is a very simple one. Remove the distractions. Remove the distractions. Here's why I say that. Careful observation requires focused attention. Write that down. That's an important statement. Careful observation requires focused attention. So here's what that means. Practically speaking, you might need to clear the the clutter from your desk or your table. Here's a big one. You likely need to turn off your phone, or better yet, hide it. I don't know about you, but so many times my phone is laying beside my Bible, and it starts, bzz, bzz, and, and I have this conversation. I don't know if you've ever had this conversation. I've had this conversation where it's like, okay, do I, do I look at the phone, or do I stay in God's Word? And I've had this conversation, why am I even asking that question? And, and, and I've had the conversation in prayer, too. You know, I'm praying and my phone goes off and it's like God says, whoever that is, they're not more important than me. So sometimes I just literally have to move my phone or turn it off, remove the distractions. All right? Another thing as far as removing distractions, turn off the TV, turn off the radio, turn off Spotify. I like to listen to Spotify when I'm preparing a message. I do not like to do Spotify when I'm studying God's Word for me personally. I just need to be able to focus. I need to observe. All right, so remove distractions. That's an easy one. Number three, stop the search. Stop the search. In the initial stages of studying a passage, don't do a Google search or go to commentaries trying to find out what something means. There'll be a time for that. There's a place for that. You need to dig in and try to figure out some things. But that's not the first step in Bible study. So stop the search. Observation begins just with you and the Word of God. You can use commentaries and dictionaries and all that kind of stuff later. But begin your study with just your eyes and with your mind. And write this down. Record what you notice. Record what you notice. You need to have pen and paper handy. And record what you notice. Now, you say, well, what about if I see stuff and I don't know what it, what it means? Okay, that's fine. You can get back to that. <clears throat> but that's not your purpose in observation. Your purpose in observation is to answer this basic question. What do I see? What do I see? We're going to practice this in a minute. You'll get an idea of why I'm saying that. 
Number four. Again, this is basic stuff. I'm trying to get to some other things that will help you. Number four, sit down with God. What I mean by that is don't allow observation to become an academic exercise. This is not simply uh, you know, a search for knowledge and an academic approach to study and all that kind of thing. When you study the Scriptures, you are sitting down with God to hear Him speak to you. Don't lose that perspective. God wants to speak to you. And God will use His Word to speak to you. So sit down with God and allow the Holy Spirit of God to be your teacher. We don't have time to look at the Scripture, but you might want to write it down and look it up later. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 13. It really talks about how the Holy Spirit of God teaches us the Word of God. And that's why I'll, often when I'm praying, before I preach or before I teach, I'll say, God, we want the Holy Spirit to be our teacher today. Because that's the role of the Holy Spirit, is to open the Word of God and to teach us the Word of God. Uh, so, sit down with God when you open the Bible. All right, now, number five. This is where it gets very practical. Number five. Observe the words that are used. Well, what does that mean, observe the words? I mean, you're reading. Of course, you're observing the words. Well, you need to look carefully at the words you're reading. And I'm going to give you some practical ways to do that. First of all, observe basic words. Observe basic words. I'm going to give you my top ten. We could probably put ten more in here. Uh, these are just ten that, that came to my mind that I thought were very important. Basic I just want to illustrate. What do you mean by basic words? Here's what I mean by basic words. Words that you often read past because they're small. But small words sometimes have big meanings. So let me give you my top ten basic words. And they're all small words. The word but. Anytime you see that word but, that word of contrast, that's an important word. You ought to stop. You ought to look at that. Number two, the word and. It's connecting something. It's connecting two thoughts, two ideas. The word and is an important word. The word therefore. I learned this when I was in... A teenager, whenever you see the word therefore, stop and look at what it's there for. It's an important word. It's pointing back to something. You, you never start a sentence with therefore. The word therefore is pointing back to something that's already been said. Uh, the word be, just the, the word be, be. Let me show you this real quickly. Let's, let's just take a minute. Uh, I just want to show you how this works. 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 2 and 8. If we, if we were just reading 1 Peter chapter 5 devotionally, one of the little words, the basic words that we hopefully would see as we're reading this is that word be. Verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Down in verse 8, then he says, in verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. That's an important concept, this word be. And if you're not careful, you'll go right past those little words that have such big meanings. The word do is another basic word, do. And another basic word is the, is the word do not. Do not. Um, 
Another good word, basic word, is the word if. If you say, the Bible says, that you love your neighbor, but you, that you love God, but you hate your neighbor. How can you say the love of God lives in you? And that word if is an important word in that, in that verse. And then this next one is, I, I just put personal pronouns. Personal pronouns like we, I, you, he, she, they, me, us, them. Anytime you see personal pronouns in the, in the Scripture, and I know you see it all through the Scripture, but as you're reading, don't read past the personal pronouns without thinking about them. The word why is a very basic word, but a very important word. And the word by, B-Y, by. Let me show you that one. 1 Corinthians 15. Go real quickly. I had scriptures for a lot of these, but we don't have time to cover them all. But 1 Corinthians 15. Let's say that we're reading that devotionally. We're reading that chapter. Or maybe we're studying that chapter to, to teach it. And we come to 1 Corinthians 15 and we're reading through. And it says in verse 2. What's the very first word in verse 2? By this gospel you were saved. That's an important concept. That word by is an important word. Go down to verse 10. We're reading through. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So that word by is such a basic word, but it's such an important word in the writing that the author has given us here. So those are some basic words. All words have, a, a, of course, a, a particular meaning in their context. Don't skip the small words because sometimes they have big meaning. Number two, observe repeated words. I often refer, uh, reference this when I'm speaking, when I'm preaching or teaching. I'll call to your attention words that are repeated. Would you go to Romans 12 real quickly? Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, look at verse 14 and 15 just as an example of repeated words. Here's what he says. <clears throat> bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Notice the word bless is repeated in verse 14. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Repeated. Mourn with those who mourn. Repeated. Look for those kind of repeated words because repeated words often unlock the passage. So pay attention uh, to repeated words. The author thought that that word or that concept was so important that he repeated it. And sometimes several times in a, in a passage of Scripture. He's repeating it to get your attention. So don't read past it. Alright, the next one. Observe the relationships of words. The relationships of words. I, I found this fascinating the other day. I was reading with you through Luke. Uh, go to Luke chapter 2. I want to show you something uh, uh, that I saw in the Word of God as just as I was reading devotionally. I want you to observe the relationship of words. And this is also an, an example of repeated words. But in Luke chapter 2, I was reading that uh, with you and I came to verse 48 and 49 and I saw something, you know, again, this power of observation. I saw something I had not seen before, though I've read Luke many times. Luke chapter 2, verse 48 and 49. Here's what it says. When his parents, this is the story that Jesus, you know, they, did you know that Jesus' parents lost him one time? I mean, that makes me feel good because I think we lost our kids, every one of our kids at one point or another. 
but they, they literally lost Jesus. You know that story. They went back to the temple. They eventually found him. They were scared out of their mind. And Mary says in verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother, Mary, his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Watch this. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Look at the next verse. Why were you searching for me, he said. Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's? Or I had to be in my father's house? And I saw that for the first time, this relationship between words. Your father and I, and Jesus said, but I'm in my father's house. You're concerned about the earthly, my earthly father. I'm concerned about my heavenly father. And, and I just got all ta- uh, called up in that. I'm just trying to show you the relationship of words. When you're reading, you can see something, uh, observe the relationship of words. Uh, And in Romans chapter 12, verses 9, you see this relationship of the words love and hate. And, and, And just look for that. Romans chapter 12, verse 12 is another example if you're writing. I'll tell you what, let's just go to Romans 12. Come on. I can't, I can't. Pass up all the good stuff. I'm almost through. Believe it or not, I really am. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Do you see the relationship here? Love and hate and good. Look in chapter 12, verse 12. Let's go down to verse 12. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. This relationship of these words packed in that verse. Here's another idea. Look for action words. Look for action words. Look for action words. Verse tw- chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Look at this action. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. This is an action word, but here the action is, don't do this. But look for action words. Number the, another uh, idea is this: observe word pictures. Look for word pictures. Verse twenty, chapter twelve, verse twenty. Look at this word picture. Look what he says. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. We can all we can all picture that what that's like, right? This is a word picture. If, if your enemy, not your friend, but your enemy, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then look at what he says. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Well, that's a word picture. What does that mean? We don't need to know right now. We just need to look for the word pictures. At this point, we don't have to worry too much about what it means. That'll come later. Right now, the first step in Bible study is observation. And one of the things we can observe is the word pictures. In observation, you're simply trying to look at and answer the question, what do I see? Uh, let, let me give you one final point. This is not on the slides. One final point that's so important. Try to read the text like you're reading it for the first time. Try to read the text. And listen, if you've been a Christian for a long time, more than likely you've read the text you're going to be reading tomorrow. Try to read the text like you've, you're reading it for the first time. Let me, let me say it to you this way. Anytime you come to the biblical text and you think, oh, I already know how this turns out, or I already know what this is, you're in trouble. You're wasting your time. 
Because you're not going to be looking, you're going to be reading and moving on. You're not there to meet with God because you already know how it turns out. One of the problems with being a preacher, and you've been in seminary and all that, and you've been a Christian since you're 11 years old, I don't know all of the Bible, but many, many times I come to the text as like, I already know this. And it's only when I try to open it and say, but God, speak to me again. Open your word and show me again what this says and what this means. That's when God meets with me and speaks with me. So, here's your homework. I got one minute. Here's your homework. I want you to take your Bible, your daily Bible reading plan this week and try just to make observations. For example, tomorrow. Here's, here's the homework. Tomorrow's assignment is this. Tomorrow, if you're reading the Bible reading plan with us, tomorrow you're reading in Luke chapter 11. Take a blank sheet of paper. Tomorrow, as you read Luke chapter 11, take a blank sheet of paper and number it to 20. On the top of the paper, write these words. I can observe that, dot, dot, dot. I can observe that, dot, dot, dot. That's at the top of the page. It's numbered 1 to 20. And then I want you to fill in the blanks with 20 observations you've made about the text. The observations need to be what you see, not what does this mean. These are not questions. These are observations that you're writing down about the text. I'll give you one example and we'll be done. Go with me to Luke chapter 11. This is what we're reading tomorrow. Luke chapter 11. I went ahead and peeked. Luke chapter 11. Reading the first verse. Here's what I, what I read. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as you taught, just as John taught his disciples. If I were doing this, I could already make three observations on that one verse. Easily, probably make more than three, but three observations on that one verse. The one observation would be this, that Jesus was praying in a certain place. That word certain place grabbed my attention. What does that word certain place mean? I don't have to know what the answer to it yet, but, but I'm just going to write down my observation I observed that Jesus prayed in a certain place. That's my observation. Observation number two. I observed that his disciples wanted to pray like he did. Lord, teach us to pray. Observation number three. I observed that John taught his disciples to pray. All that's from the first verse. So you've got a whole chapter. I think it's, it's 53 verses. You can easily, easily, easily come up with 20 observations from Luke chapter 11. And that's all I'm asking you to do. Do that every day. 20 observations every day with the text, with that chapter that you're reading. And then we'll, we'll talk next week about how we can take it further. Okay? You've been good. I appreciate your patience. Thank you so much. God bless.